You are listening to the Follow series on 1 Peter from Holy Cross Presbyterian Church in Stanton, Virginia. 1 Peter is a letter written to Christians struggling to follow after Jesus in a world in which they increasingly see themselves as strangers. It is both instruction how and an encouragement to live in the world in relationships, vocations, communities, and the church out of an identity formed by the transforming and perfect work of Jesus Christ. The rest of you, if you could uh, turn your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. It's in the New Testament. Like I, like I said at the beginning um, of worship, we were right, kind of right at the beginning, right in the second week of uh, a summer-long series um, on the New Testament book of 1 Peter that we're calling Follow, because the question that we're seeking to answer in this series is what does it look like to follow Jesus through all of life, or, or maybe better would be, what does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? In a Holy Cross, when we talk about being a disciple, when we talk about discipleship, uh, growing in our Christian faith, what we're talking about is knowing and showing Christ. Knowing and showing Christ. Because a disciple of Jesus is not just someone who knows propositions about Jesus, but instead, someone who is growing in knowing God as he's revealed in Jesus Christ more and more, like growing in that knowledge, but not just growing in knowledge, but also growing in, in, in even just relational knowledge, but growing in showing him to the world through the renewal of the gospel. That is what we're exploring over the next three months. Last week, we looked at what a, what a profile of the follower looks like. Right? What, it, what does Peter say a disciple of Jesus looks like? And... Um, and today our passage highlights that being, a, being Jesus' disciple means first and foremost knowing a person. So if you have your place in the book of 1 Peter or in your order of worship, I'd invite you to stand in honor of God's Word. Be reading 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. As we do so, let's be mindful remember that this is God's Word. It is not something that we have chosen for ourselves. It is not something that we said this would be fun. Let's, let's go with this book instead of a different one. It's something that lays claim on us. So let's hear it in that way this morning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this you rejoice, though now for a little while necessarily, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Friends, this is God's Word, given that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? Father, we're coming into this room for a bunch of different walks this week. Some of us uh, filled with joy and relief. Others of us hanging on by our fingernails to the Gospel. Others of us simply just exploring, wondering what this Christianity thing is in the first place. With all of us, Lord, we need Your grace. We need You to meet us here. So we ask that You would. 
and you preach your gospel to us. By your Holy Spirit, Lord, would you open our hearts and minds, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. Listen, I, I have, we got a lot to talk about today, so I'm going to jump right in. There's an outline in your bulletin, if that's helpful for you, as always. We're going to look at, at uh, three points this morning. We're going to look at the one who rescues, we're going to look at the one who relates, and then finally we're going to look at the one to know, okay? The one who rescues, the one who relates, and then finally the one to know. All right, you ready? All right, last week we saw how Peter greeted those he was sending his letter to. Some of you will remember that Peter is sending his letter to what is now modern-day Turkey, right? It's a, um, what during his day would have been called Asia Minor. Today he, he jumps into the body of his letter by beginning with a blessing of the God who recreates. Look down at verse 3 because he says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, stop there. Because we need to understand this first and foremost. Because if we're interested in following this, this one, this Jesus, this God, we have to understand who we're following in the first place. And Peter's opening statement is, is one of blessing. He wants to give a, a blessing to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, stay with me because this is important. Because being a disciple of Jesus Christ doesn't simply mean believing in some generic deity. Uh, it doesn't mean believing in some kind of generic idea of God. It means specifically knowing the God revealed in the New Testament as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the complicated part of this statement is actually when, when Peter calls Jesus Lord. Now, to most of the Greco-Roman world, that probably wouldn't have been that strange, although it would be strange that he's calling someone other than Caesar Lord. But to a Jew, that would have been that would have produced a little bit of attention. Because you see, the word Lord it, it, that he uses there is the same word they use in the, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to translate the name of God. He is Lord. And this is important because the Christian understanding of God that's, that's born out of the Scriptures is that God is revealed as three persons. Okay? If, if you're checking us out, if you're new to Christianity, this is central. So uh, you, you may have heard these words, but, but I want to explain them a little bit. That, that God is revealed as Father, as Son, and as Holy Spirit in one essence or, or substance. It really doesn't matter how you describe that. What it means is that God is not three gods, nor is, is, is He one God in three forms. Right? Like, like a solid, liquid, gas type thing. Instead... The Father is God, Jesus is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And though three persons, they are one God and not three. Like, what? I know. But really, it's more than a math problem. Trust me. I know one doesn't equal three. But what we're talking about here, though, is that we're not talking about a generic higher power. To be a disciple of Jesus, to be a Christian, is to have a rather specific understanding of who God is. Okay? And Peter continues that this God is to be blessed because he has caused us to be born again according to his great mercy. Now, no matter where you are with Christianity this morning, you've probably heard those two words put together, born again, but more than likely, again, no matter where you are, uh, you, there's probably the fact that most of us don't really grasp what's being argued for here. And the reason for that is because we aren't familiar with the Bible's story of the world. Because when the, the Bible tells the story that when God created the world, he made it good and he put humanity over all of his creation to be in relationship with him, and to, to reign over it. And the scriptures picture those first two people, specifically Adam, as, as our representative. Our representative, the one who kind of stands in the place for the rest of us, right? 
Humanity was created to be in loving relationships with God and each other and to be his agents of rule throughout the world. The problem is, is that our representative, Adam, was fooled into believing a lie. The lie that God was not out for our good. And that we had the right to be both equal with God and to define reality as we saw fit. In other words, to define what good and evil are and then to hold God to that. Right? And when this happened, the Scriptures say we turned from God and betrayed Him. And that, that is what the Bible calls sin. I know that we think that sin is this, like, probably two or three really particular bad things. But in the, in the Scriptures, sin is turning away from God and turning towards other things. It is, it's a relational break. It's a betrayal. Okay? And so, what that means is that now... When we betrayed God, it had devastating consequences. And one of them was that humanity, all of humanity, because again, Adam was our representative. He represented us. That because he was our representative, now all of humanity was turned away from God by nature, bent towards independence from him. In other words, in in biblical language, what what we'd say is that all of humanity are sinners by birth. But not just that, though, but also that because of that nature, we all now further that betrayal day in and day out. And so, again, in biblical language, we sin because we're sinners, not we're sinners because we sin. You see the difference there? If we're sinners because we sin, then you just stop sinning, and then you're not a sinner anymore. But in the Bible's way of looking at things, we are that by our very nature. And the Scriptures describe this state with dire terms. The fact that we are enslaved the fact that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. In other words, we are helpless. And because the problem is independence from God, even our attempts to make ourselves better worsen it. Let me, let me say that again to make sure that we get that. Because sin is betraying God and moving out of dependence on Him to our independence, if we even try and make ourselves better... We can't because we're simply increasing our independence. We're doing it independently. We're making the problem worse. Okay, so here's where this ties into what Peter's saying. God, after Adam and Eve sinned, promised to make things right. Because you'd have to, right? Because if the problem is they're independent from God, if if things are going to be made right, it's going to be because God did it. And so he promised to do that. We are now stuck as both... Guilty of betrayal and corrupt, which means by nature turned away. And so he promises to make things right, even though he's the one that's betrayed. Think about that for a minute. What is it that would motivate someone who has been betrayed, truly betrayed, not just like, oh, someone kind of called me a name in public, like truly turned away from? What would motivate someone to initiate a rescue plan? Well, according to Peter, he says it's because of his great mercy. In other words, it's not deserved. You tracking with me? God did what he did out of his mercy, not because we somehow earned it, that we're somehow worthy of that. We betrayed him. The only thing we deserved was judgment. Because the Bible says that what we do deserve for betraying God is judgment. And because the one who betrayed is eternal, the judgment should be as well. But God, because of his rich mercy, caused us to be born again. Okay, now we're back to those words, so stay with me. Two things about that little phrase. First, Peter's talking about changing our nature. Remember I said that by nature we are now sinners. Peter's talking about changing our nature. 
If we're to turn back to Him, our natures have to be changed. That's what Jesus is talking about in John chapter 3 when He's talking to this dude whose name is Nicodemus. Okay? He's a, Nicodemus is a kind of a really religious guy, one of the religious professionals, so to speak. And he, he comes to Jesus by night because he doesn't want anybody to know that he's talking to him. And he says, look, I know you're good. You've come from God. This is great. Let's have this nice little talk. And Jesus doesn't even acknowledge what he just said. He said, um, listen, man, if you want a part of the kingdom of God, you've got to be born again. And then he says, in fact, if you even just want to see it, <laughs> if you just want to see what's there, you've got to be born again. You can't even see it without this act. Okay, what, what he's talking about is he means that if we are to turn back to God, God has to act first. He has to change us. And according to Peter, by God's great mercy, that is exactly what he's done. That is the God that Christianity calls us to know. But secondly, this word is in the passive, okay? And so he's caused us to be born again. It's in the passive, which means the emphasis is, on, is not on the us, it's on someone else. Um, Probably a better way to communicate this is with a word we don't use anymore. In English, we, they have this word that's called beget, right? And some of you know, like at the beginning of the New Testament, you have all these begets, and sometimes you have those in the, in the Old Testament as well, and you're like, those are the things you skip, right? Like, I don't understand what that means. But it, the word beget is, is helpful because what this means is that God, by His great mercy, has begetted us. In other words, He is the one that takes the initiative. He is the one that does all the work. God is the one, by His great mercy, who is working to draw for Himself a people into the world. Again, that is the God that Christianity calls us to know. But Peter continues that with the scope of rescue. Look down at verses 3 to 5. He has these three prepositional phrases. They're harder to say in English, but they stand out the original. He says that we've been born again into a living hope. Okay, We've been born again into an inheritance. And then lastly, into a salvation. Okay, Here's what this is talking about. When humanity sinned, again, when, when we betrayed God, the penalty was not just corruption, but also guilt. Remember, it was, it was death, but not just physical death, uh, but, but both a life that, I don't need that, both a life that we weren't made for, in other words, alienation, and judgment by God. And the entire point of the Scriptures, though, is that God sought to deal with both sin and its consequences to us, or for us. And that is why Jesus came. Because in Jesus, God came and lived the life we couldn't. He lived a life that wasn't marked by sin. By nature, He was not a sinner because He was also God. And so He lived the life that we couldn't, but then He died to bear the judgment due for our betrayal. And then Jesus rose to declare that, that, that sin was dealt with. And so when, when, when Peter says that we've been born again into a living hope, what he's talking about is not that we have, we have um, kind of a more vibrant, wishful thinking than, than anyone else. In Christianity, hope is not wishful thinking. It's something that is sure. It's truly something that is substantive. It is a living one. And it is a living one because death doesn't have the last word. Because in Jesus' resurrection, He conquered sin and He conquered death. And so we have an inheritance also, because we have been born again into God's family, and because we are part of God's family, both that inheritance is, both that inheritance and us are kept secure, guarded by the power of God. In other words, our place in God's family, when Peter says that we have an inheritance that is kept in heaven for us, and we ourselves are guarded by the power of God, what he means is it is God that holds on to us, not us unto him. 
And all this, Peter says, comes through faith, which means faith. Okay, faith. That's a churchy word. What does that mean? Uh, In the New Testament, faith is not just kind of intellectual assent. It's not just kind of believing certain things. Faith is not just saying, well, yeah, I, I think Jesus is a good guy. I think he really existed. He was there. Faith isn't even just saying, yeah, I actually believe he might in fact be son of God, died on a cross, rose on the third day. Faith is placing the weight of your hopes onto another person. Which, if it were any other person, it would crush them, right? But because Jesus is God, it can't. Faith in Christ, faith in, in, in Jesus, means placing all that we're seeking life from on Him. It, it of course, involves intellectual assent, but it's not just that. Christ is God's answer for our sin. It means returning to dependence on Him instead of ourselves. But then finally, we've also been born again into a salvation. Salvation. Again, culturally, most of us think that what salvation is talking about is going to heaven when you die. But in the New Testament, in in the Old Testament too, like that is not what it meant for God to save. Like, that's a bus stop. That's not the final destination. What it meant for God to save was to take the world in all of its brokenness and set it to rights, to make things right again. Because you and I, like, we look around at the world, and you and I know this is not the way it's supposed to be. Something ain't right. And when, when we're talking about being born again into a salvation, what Peter is talking about is... God taking the initiative to secure our place in that world. In that world. When He comes to make things right again. When sin is fully and finally removed. When death is eliminated and all of our relationships are restored to what we were made for. Listen to me, guys. That is the Christian hope. That is the Christian hope. The Christian faith is not about life after death. The Christian faith is about a God who acts in history who revealed himself fully in Jesus of Nazareth, and who will recreate the world to restore his good intentions for it. It is about a God who who acts to restore to himself those who have betrayed him, like me and like you, and who out of mercy has acted in Jesus Christ to bear the judgment that we are due, and who by his Spirit brings new life to those he loves so that they will return to him in Jesus, and then guards them in that faith by his own power. That is the Christian faith. Now, the one who rescues, though, is also the one who relates. Look down at verses 6 to 7 for the purpose of trial. Peter says this, In this truth, you greatly rejoice, though for a short while it is necessary that you are being grieved by various trials. Okay, here's the deal. Scholars will tell you that Peter's, the, the people that Peter's writing to are probably undergoing some form of persecution. Now, when we think persecution in the church, um, if you've been in the church any amount of time, you're thinking like uh, really bad torture and death and all that stuff. That was going on sporadically, but not systematically at this time. What he's probably talking about is um, being socially ostracized, economically marginalized, um, un, like um, alienated from family and friends, um, publicly ridiculed, uh, being looked on with suspicion because no one really is sure what you guys do when you all get together, like that kind of thing, okay? So they're undergoing some form of suffering, and perhaps some of them are undergoing some violence. Um, 
because Christianity in the first few centuries was viewed with scorn and fear by the Roman world at large, mainly because they, no one understood it. Um, it was so different from anything else the Romans had ever encountered before, including Judaism, um, because of the fact that it, it kept... Christians seem to be so utterly stubborn about talking about this Jesus guy as somehow Lord, when everyone knew Caesar was Lord. And, and they keep worship. They won't offer incense to the gods, and that's what any good patriot does in the Roman world. They wouldn't do that. They're antisocial. I mean, literally, this, this, is, what, this is what the Romans thought of them. Um, so they're undergoing a bit, of, a bit of suffering and trial. And three things I want to point out here um, in verse 6, though. Peter says first that these things are for a little while. In other words, what Peter is doing is he has just gotten done talking about the greatness of the Christian hope, right? And now he says, for a little while, you got a little suffering. Okay? He's placing their suffering in the context, not of this world being all there is, but of an eternity in another, or an eternity in this one made right, probably better to say. He's placing that in context. Are, these sufferings are relatively short when compared with an eternity in God's new creation. But secondly, Peter says these things are necessary. Now, some of our translations deal with that differently. The original is, is rather clear. Um, we're going to see why in a minute. But Peter is telling these folks that going through these issues, these um, apparently random circumstances, there's nothing random about them. That what is going on is not somehow outside of God's plan or control. Instead, they are necessary. Okay? Again, we're going to get back to why that is in a second. Lastly, is the word trial. Now, trial. That word means testing or ordeal. Um, it's the way you can talk about someone uh, undergoing some great test to who they are. It's also a way that you can talk about metal being smelted, refined. And so uh, that's kind of the... the the push that it has here. Now, when I say test, normally we think um, something we have to accomplish to show our stuff, right? Especially if you're in school. Like, that's what you think about when you think of tests. Like, how do I, okay, I'm going to be graded. I've got to show everything that I know on paper. But in this context, it's not simply something that proves something else to be true. It's also something that makes it that way, right? When you test in this way, when you, and he'll use this analogy in a minute, when you test gold in the fire, what you're doing is you are making it pure, not just testing to see if it is. In fact, you already know it's not. That's why it's in the fire. Right? You're, you're making it that way. Peter is placing the sufferings of those he is writing to within the framework of God's work. You following me? He's placing their trials in the framework of something God is doing instead of in the framework of the random acts of history. Okay? Now that leads us to verse 7, where he says that these things are happening so that. Okay? Now this is really important because this, this shows purpose, intentionality. Peter says that what is happening to them right now, like I said a second ago, is, is like when gold is refined. When gold is placed in the fire, it's heated not to destroy it, but to draw out its impurities, right? And so the same is true of trials for Christians. The purpose is so that we grow in our faith. And when I remember when I say faith, what I mean is dependence on God, not, not somehow growing in our moral um, fortitude so that we can take whatever's put out at us. That is Americanism. That is not Christianity. 
Christianity is about dependence on a person, not rugged individualism. Okay? The purpose is so that we grow in our faith on Jesus so that when Christ returns to remake the world, that faith is seen to be true faith and not just one of the many counterfeits that are possible. Okay? The so that is incredibly important. And that leads Peter to this incredible statement in verses 8 to 9. He says that though you have seen him, or though you, though you haven't seen him, you love him. And though you've never laid eyes on him, you have faith. Now, listen close, because what we're, what we're looking at here is one of the main differences between Christianity and other world religions, okay? The religions of the world will give you a path. Here's what you need to do. Even if that path is marked by someone who's walking ahead of it, it's still, the important thing about it is the path, the ethic, the spirituality that you have to follow to get X, Y, or Z. And normally that's get back to God, make things right, get out of this world, the cycle of suffering, whatever you want to do. It's a path. Christianity is not about a path. It is about relating to a person. Which is why Peter says, you haven't seen him, but you love him and trust him. In other words, in your trial, you know relationship with him, and because of that, you're receiving salvation. And you can almost sense Peter's like wonder at this. Because Peter actually did see him. Peter actually did walk with him for three years. So when Peter loves him, he's like, dude, I saw him. I I touched him. Like, we talked. We hung out. I love him, but so do you in the same way that I do. And you haven't even seen the dude. And you have faith in him, too. What he's saying here is that the experience of these Christians in Asia Minor is the same as his. Okay, now listen to me. Christianity is not about being good and going to church. It's a relationship with the living God through Jesus Christ. I don't care whether you've you've just walked in our doors, you were born into this church, and Lord, we got plenty of those, right? We got more coming. Or if you've just been in a church for all of your life, I'm here to tell you that is not, Christianity is more than that. It is a relationship with the living God through Jesus Christ, even in the midst of trial, following Him. Following Him, in other words, true faith means being in relationship. Okay? Now, that gives us the one who rescues, the one who relates. Let me give us the one to know. All right? I want to bring this home to us in three ways this morning. First, by looking at who this God is. Because listen to me, many of us in this room, if not most of us, do not worship this God. We worship the God of safe. Okay? God of safe is the one whose purpose it is to keep our lives clean and painless and carefree. Even better would be risk-free. He does not ask much of us. He would never cause us any harm. And He certainly would never tell us that our innermost desires are wrong for us. Friends, that is not the God of the Bible. God of faith tells us that if we do the right things, we won't be hurt. The God of the New Testament says, I did all the right things, and I suffered and died for it. So guess what? Look, don't get me wrong. You and I were made for a land of safety. 
We were made for a land where pain and death and all that stuff doesn't happen. It's just simply not the end in and of itself. The end is relationship with the God that we've betrayed. Uh, we were made for, in other words, like we'll most flourish in a reconciled relationship with God. But most of us don't want the reconciled relationship with God. We just want the safety that's supposed to come from it in the end. We don't want, we don't want God. We just want His stuff. And by His stuff, we mean safety. Listen, I know this well because I'm just like you. I hit trial and suffering and I immediately begin to think that God has abandoned me. What Peter is saying, though, is that the purpose of these things, listen to me, the purpose of these things is to draw us closer to Him since He has suffered in Jesus. You following me on that? Jesus is the one who has suffered. And so when we suffer, we... We are drawn into fellowship more with Him. Or at least we can be. God of safe is a force that serves us. But the God of the Bible, the only true God, is a person to be known. Now that leads us to needing to know. I don't know if you noticed, but Peter lays out some pretty, um, I don't know, strong words here? Exclusive claims, maybe? I mean, twice he mentions the notions of salvation, and he even talks about God's mercy, like as if, as if he's stating these things as if he doesn't have to argue about them. These are loaded terms, right? They are loaded terms because they speak of the, the way that the Bible talks about the plight of humanity. I mean, if you don't think that's our problem, then there, you've got no reason to listen to the rest of Peter, right? But he makes those claims because, you see, Christianity does not lay out the possibility. It doesn't even lay out the possibility that the the plight of humanity and the solution that is offered there, even in what Peter says in these verses, that it, is, it doesn't lay out the possibility that these are just simply one way of looking at it. <laughs> one perspective on the whole. One little blind dude seeing what the elephant is. Peter does not even lay out that possibility. And neither does Christianity. It says that our problem, all of our problems, not just a select few of us, not just Westerners or whatever. All of our problem is that we are hopelessly alienated from God and under judgment for our betrayal of Him. And the only way to fix this is faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, some of you are thinking right now, you're like, that is crazy. How can you possibly say that this, what you're talking about, is right and everything else is wrong? That is so arrogant, right? You should be thinking that. Maybe, maybe you should be thinking it more if you're not. I, look, I suppose that it is arrogant, but all claims on reality are by nature exclusive. Listen to me, because whenever we make a claim that, that perhaps um, all religions are equal, that there is no one way to God, or, or that all religions are basically the same, we're making an ex- a, the same excuse, exclusive claim. We're making the claim that our way of viewing the world is right and all others are not. In other words, we're being just as arrogant as you just thought I was. Okay? So let me encourage you with this. Put your own faith statement there that there can't possibly be one way to God. Put it under the same scrutiny you're putting mine and let's see if it, if it holds up. Okay? Because here's the thing about needing to know. Christianity does not just say you need to know a belief system. Okay? Because some of you in this room were either raised in a church or a culture like this one where you learned all the, all the right answers to things, 
right? You learned uh, all the right answers, but you neither love Jesus nor truly trust in Him. Right? You know the answers. You know the orthodox answers to things. You may even know more questions than anyone else does. But you don't know, you don't love Christ, nor do you actually have your faith in Him. Instead, you love you, and, and you trust in either your own clean living or your own right answers. But to be a disciple... To be a Christian means growing in knowing and loving a person. If that isn't you, I'd invite you to lay aside your pride and your right answers and to trust instead in a real living person, Jesus. Okay, last thing. Stay with me, we're almost done. Let me speak to following in trial. Listen, Christians are not great at this, and that includes me, okay? Okay? We're not great at this because most of us have become, um, we've come to believe that to be a Christian means you, you're always happy. Like someone knocked you out with some of the Joker's gas and you have a smile on your face all the time, right? Like everything's good. It's like, dude, your arm just got cut off. I know, it's great. Like, no, that, that, that is not life. Or, or like others of us just get really angry and cold when things aren't going right. But Peter is giving us a brief outline of what this can look like. Because listen to me, if faith is about a business deal, you know what I mean by that? Like, I do this for God, he does this for me, right? I've done this, he gives me this. We have this little economic relationship. I signed a contract when I was 20, and, and, and this is the way this is going to work for me the rest of my life. If, if faith is about a business deal, then when things like this happen, we feel cheated and withdraw when we suffer, Right? But if faith is about a relationship, then suffering becomes an opportunity to engage in relationship. Here's what I mean. When you and I go through trial, we normally either withdraw from God or pretend that nothing is happening. Right? We think um, something is wrong. God's supposed to keep me painless. And so we move to protect ourselves. And the two ways we protect ourselves are either from withdrawal or avoidance. Right? Just avoid the topic altogether. Nothing's, nothing to see here. Nothing's really happening. Or we withdraw. But the thing is, is that the Scriptures, and particularly the Psalms, show us that when tough stuff happens, and it does happen, uh, that instead, faith isn't pretending that it isn't happening or that it's not a big deal. Instead, it's moving towards God and engaging. Dare I even say complaining about it to Him. Like, that's the whole point of faith, right? Like, you and I, okay, if, if you're in a relationship, like, if you're married or in a relationship, you, you know, now, let me take that back. If you're in any relationship, you know how this works. When someone cheeses you off, if you go to them and address it, no matter how bad the fight is, you're with them and you're addressing it. You're in relationship. Things go bad when you decide... When you become Mr. Passive-Aggressive and everything becomes like, I'll, when they come to me and they figure out something's wrong, like, and you withdraw, right? That's not relationship. That's economics. It broke the deal. Faith is moving towards God and engaging Him. And in this, Jesus is our chief example, right? Because on the cross, the only innocent person to ever live is suffering and dying, and what does He do? He cries out to God. He cries out to God. And, if you're willing to say it, he even questions him. 
Why are you forsaking me? He's, he's crying out to him. He's engaging with him. He's in the midst of, of experiencing not only physical suffering, but the judgment of God. But he didn't withdraw, and he certainly didn't pretend it wasn't a big deal. He took his questions to God. Like, if you're in trial right now, faith is not making everyone think that whatever's going on in your life doesn't really matter. It's not really that big deal. It's okay. We're good. God is good. All the time. All the time. You know, like, it's not that. Nor is your only other option withdrawing from God as if He didn't keep His end of the bargain. Look, look, listen. Christians were never promised a safe life. As a matter of fact, it's the exact opposite. Literally, the exact opposite. What we were promised, though, is the presence and fellowship of the God we were made for in the midst of it because He went there before us. Draw near to Him with all of your questions, with all of your experience, with all of your pain. Because I can tell you from experience, He will not turn you away. Would you pray with me? Lord, in in the midst of all of these things, we need Your grace because out of Your great mercy, You are the one who works in us first. And so we ask that You would do that. Work in us. There are some of us in this room today, Lord, who don't know You. We've never put our faith in You. We need to know You. And so we ask that You would come and You would act. Others of us are struggling to know You in the midst of trial, in the midst of disappointment and suffering. Um, some of us in the midst of things that just seem like suffering to us and are really just uh, probably more likely our tantrums because we don't think you're, you're the God of safe. We pray for grace to follow you, to reject the false visions of God that we have, to lay our hopes and our life in, on Jesus. And as you do that, Lord, shape us into a church that shows this God into the world. Because our, our city is hungry for Him. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.